Well, good evening, everyone. If you would, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 141. Psalm 141. For a number of weeks now, we've been in these last 15 psalms, and they really deal heavily with the topic of right worship. And you'll remember a number of weeks ago now, I'd mentioned that these psalms really knit together for us elements of worship, singing prayer, confession of our sin, uh, reading the Bible, uh, and the exposition of the Word. And if you think about Sunday morning and our gathering here, uh, there is an intentionality about practicing those elements in our worship. And, And the reason for that is because we find that there's biblical warrant for those things. Um, I take a a, a position that uh, when it comes to the meeting of God's people, we're not free to do whatever it is that we want to do in our creative genius. Somebody comes along and says, well, we should have ribbon dancers behind Jay while he's preaching. Tough. Uh, Book, chapter, and verse that we should do that on uh, a given worship service. So we, we have to look at the Word of God as being authoritative in every aspect of our life, and certainly in the area of our gathered worship. The, the, the reality is, this is really part and parcel to Protestant Christianity for a very long time. And yet we find in our generation, it's a very small group that would hold to the idea that we need a biblical warrant uh, for a particular element in our worship service. It's not because the Bible has changed. It's because we've jumped through theological hoops to get to that position. And and it's my contention that we need to recover in our day a serious attitude towards the worship and the reverence of God. And here we find in the Psalter a pattern by which we can give a cogent argument that in fact this is not just man's argument. It's not just Jay's argument. It's in fact the Lord's desire for His people. God's desire is that we would gather here and we would consider who He is and His goodness and His holiness and His omniscience and His omnipresence and His love and His mercy towards us. And then in light of who He is and how He has prescribed for us to come to Him, we should sing His praises, and we should learn of Him in such a way that as we leave, we leave with a greater understanding of who He is and our lives are conformed because of that reality. Now, we've we've seen to this point from Psalm 135 on that there are different kinds of uh, themes to each one of these psalms. Psalm 135 dealt with praise. Psalm 136 kind of gave us a basis of why we worship in the created order. God uh, owning all things. Psalm 139 uh, again points the worshiper to the all-knowing God who is providential and sovereign over all things. Well, we come to Psalm 141 tonight, and this psalm deals with the theme 
of prayer. So with that in mind, if you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word, we will read together starting in verse 1. Just a short uh, explanation. I I have been chastised by my favorite church member, my wife. Uh, She said to me earlier this week, Jay, you never give us the verse numbers. We don't know where we're supposed to go. You just give a chapter number and you you run on from there. So I'm going to try and give you what I affectionately refer to as Sarah numbers now. Um, Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 141, we will begin tonight. This written, a psalm of David under the inspiration of Almighty God. O Lord, I call upon You. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to You. Let my prayer be counted as incense before You and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. To busy myself with wicked deeds in, in company with men who work iniquity. And let, not, let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judge, judges are, overthro- are thrown over a cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight leaning into this prayer that you have inspired through David asking that you would inscribe the truths that are found here on all of our hearts, that we would understand in fresh ways how it is that we should relate to You as worshipers, that we would be rooted in the truth and that we would bring You honor and glory. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Every word and really every sentence here until you get to the latter verses is... Uh, an instruction, again, in the theme of prayer. And there are many commentators that argue because of verse 2 that this should be attributed as a prayer uh, of uh, before retiring. A, a prayer or a psalm before going to bed at night. Not retiring in the vocational sense, but in the sleepy sense. Um, and, and they root this in, in verse 2. Um, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now again, uh, there are psalms all throughout the Psalter who, uh, that, that really uh, lean towards this theme of, of prayer. But here we find that there is a significant weight 
uh, to that idea uh, of, of coming before God and uh, at living rightly in our worship and going to Him in prayer. Prayer is something that most of us, if we're honest, at times find difficult. Um, we find prayer to be at times burdensome. Uh, we struggle with how to approach the Lord. We, we struggle in so many different areas. And the, the question that we have to ask, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever struggled in prayer because it's a universal difficulty. And, and we have to ask the question, why is it that we tend to struggle to pray? And I'm going to give you a few uh, thoughts. This is not exhaustive. But one, we struggle to pray because God's thoughts are not our own. We don't think the way the living God thinks. Uh, we think in ways that are other than His thoughts. You remember Isaiah writes in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There are times that we go before the Lord and we don't know what to pray. There are times that we bend a knee and we have this sense that God is far off. He's distant. And that distance is not something that we should just explain away with trivial, oh no, 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 God loves you. He does love you, but there's a reason that we feel at times distant from God in prayer. And the reason is because He is holy and we are not. And so as we, become, as we come before His throne, there are times that we sense this God that I am praying to is different than I am. And the, the, the right attitude as we come to that conclusion is to say yes and amen. He is holy and we are not and we tend not to think the way that He thinks. And why is it that we don't think the way that He thinks? The answer is because we don't know our Bible. Our ignorance of God is, to one extent or another, a universal problem. I, I have five children, and not one of them has ever been born with the Bible memorized and all of its doctrinal components assimilated into their minds. Uh, we all have to come to conversion, and then the Spirit continues to teach us about who God is through His Word. We don't know the Bible the way that we should. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we, in our own lives, all of us, tend to be unprofitable in pursuing His Word. Now, praise be God that there are uh, brothers and sisters who grow exponentially in their understanding of the Word of God, and they help us to glean from God's Word. But friends, we should never depend on other people for intake of Scripture. It is our responsibility to be in the Word of God, and not simply so that we can check the box off that we've read the Bible through in a year. Uh, we should read the Bible in a relational way. That we not only want to know the words, 
but we want to know the God who inspired them. We want to understand all of the theological realities behind the words. We want to understand the words in such a way that they lord over every area of our lives because we want God to lord over every area of our lives. We want, in fact, His thoughts to be our thoughts. We want to grow in that way. And the only way to do that is in the power of the Spirit under the Word. Secondly, we, or third, rather, we tend to struggle in prayer uh, because we are, I think my grandmother would have said, arrogant cusses. Now, let me translate that in a more palatable way. We think we don't need God's help, we think we're sufficient. And you say, oh, no. Really? If you're on an airplane at 35,000 feet and it starts to nosedive towards the ground, do you begin to pray? Or do you just keep reading the newspaper and drinking whatever it is that the stewardess has brought to you? No, you begin to cry out to God. And why? Because in that moment, there is the earth rapidly coming in your direction. And there is nothing that you can do to stop it. No one, when the plane starts to plunge, starts yelling, hey, Captain, you need to pull up on the yoke, give it more throttle. We don't do that. Because we realize the guy in the cockpit really isn't ultimately in control either. We want the Lord to get us out of this situation. I'm a big chicken when we fly. Turbulence sends me into deep prayer life. But all of that to say... We tend to run to God when things aren't going well. But when our lives are blessed, and friends, we are nothing new all throughout Scripture. We see when the people of Israel are blessed in the providence of God, what often happens is that they begin to believe that they're self-sufficient and they forget God. They no longer need Him. Friends, one of the greatest, I think, kindnesses of God in our lives is that when we go through difficult trials and circumstances, part of what God is doing in those moments is to turn us back to Himself that we would cry out to Him. So why don't we pray? We don't pray because our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And our thoughts are not God's thoughts because we are not in the Word. And we also struggle to pray because often, at times, we feel self-sufficient. Now, as a note, as we move on, I think it's interesting to, to reckon with the fact, and this is one of those contextual things as you read through the Psalms, and I hope you do, that you have to always remember who the author is. And, and there's scholarly debate, but I do believe that, that these Psalms are rightly ascribed to David. David was the king. David had armies. David had... Uh, strength and power. I mean, this is, the, this is the kid that killed Goliath. And yet we find him praying. Because in all of his strength, in all of his political might, in all of his ability, David is put into situations where David knows David is not enough. And we should be thankful when God does that in our own life. As we come to this psalm, we need to see that the first two verses of this psalm are in fact an invocation, a call to God to hear what the psalmist is about to pray. O God, I call upon You. Hasten to Me. Give ear to My voice when I call to You. 
If we are going to be true worshipers of the living God, do you know what the simplest thing is that we must do as we come before Him? We must call out to Him. We must reverence His name. We must address Him as we come to Him in prayer. I believe that one of the most early in ministry, this used to bother me. So if you've critiqued me in the last week, don't let this convict you too much other than what the Spirit intends. Um, But people would come up and, you know, I just didn't get anything out of that sermon today. Okay. And I, not only for me, but other pastors, leaders, that is, is typical. And I find that in the, in the body often we have this, and, and I'm thankful, I need to clarify, that I am so grateful to see this dissipating in the context of our church. But we have this, in American Christianity, this idea that our job as Christians is to kind of come in uh, for a service and plop down in the seat, and then it's Jay's job to carry the full freight of our spiritual development. I just love you enough to tell you that's nonsense. The greatest thing that you do for worship, I believe, doesn't happen in this room. It happens in ho- at home or in your car before you get to this place, and that is, God, use this time that I might be molded and changed. It's your personal dealing with God, going to God, praying to God, God, I want to grow as I engage the body of Christ this Wednesday night or Sunday morning. I want to be molded, not by Jay, but by the power of your Spirit, in light of your word. It's interesting that often when we come, we forget that when we come to this room, we're not coming to just meet with Cam or with Sarah or with Robbie, although it's great to have fellowship in the body, isn't it? But we are chiefly coming to this place to meet with the living God. We're not coming just to ham it up among friends, although we find our friends here, we are actually coming to meet with God. And so, in light of that, if we think through the, again, the economy of Scripture, we don't find, oh man, drives me nuts when I see like bumper stickers and t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy, or all of that irreverent nonsense, Um, because no, he's not. Uh, He's the holy creator God of the entire universe and our Redeemer. And we should come uh, reverencing the reality that as we meet before Him, there should be a reverence. Now that is almost universally laughed at, mocked in our day, but God hasn't changed, friends. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we come into this place, there should be a sense, now I think we can take this too far, but there should be a sense in which we are preparing our hearts and we want to be inwardly reverent towards God and we want that to be a reality as we meet with other believers in this place. We want Him to hear our prayers and so we call out to Him, our Father in heaven, um, hear our plea. Reuben Torrey uh, said this. He was an influential teacher. He said, We should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we 
are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and are actually praying to Him. We're not just checking off the box. We're not merely just rambling out words. We are before the God of the heavens. And we need to be conscious of that weighty reality. True prayer is speaking to God and not merely going through those religious exercises. In verse 2, David refers to some of the forms of worship that were practiced in his day. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifices. There are two components there that we need to drill in on. One is the incense and the other is sacrifice. Incense often was used in the holy place of the temple and it would rise as smoke. And if you've ever been to a Catholic service, they still will use incense to this day. And we, many of us understand that that rising gives some symbolism of, in an Old Testament, right, biblical context, of the prayers of the saints rising toward God. There is a, 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 a metaphor there. And we, we find that in Revelation chapter 5. Golden bowls full of incense, the Bible records, which are the prayers of the saints. And one of the things that we have to understand about sacrifice and that whole sacrificial system is that at the basis of that uh, animal being given was that there is a spiritual sacrifice being given to God. That the spirit of this animal is being given before the Lord. The, the body is being burned, but there is a spiritual significance to the Old Testament economy uh, there. And so those two components, the prayers of the saints, and David has just invoked the name of God in praying, and then also the reality of the spiritual nature. And we are told in the New Testament that we are to worship how? In spirit and in truth. And so as we come, we must remember what the prophet Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. To obey is better than a sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The way that we rightly worship is to obey the words of God. To be a church that submits to God's Word. So what is it that David prays for here? In verses 3-7, through we see the bulk of what David asks for. And the, the, the first thing that he says is to set a guard over his mouth. And he continues with that same desire for his heart and also for his actions. David is concerned that God would protect him in the purity of his life. That his life would be, as it were, in connection with um, Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice. That he would live in purity that would please God. He prays before God to that end. And the first thing that he prays for, again, is that his mouth, would, that, that God would set a guard over his mouth. And what he's asking is not make me be quiet. If you've ever been on a long road trip with a family of five, you have probably prayed for God to set a guard over the mouth of all of your children. But it's a different prayer. It's a 
They just need to be quiet. That's not what David is praying for here. What David is praying for is God help me set a guard over my mouth so that I don't sin against other people and against you. David is well aware by this point in the, in the Psalms and in his personal life that the whole axiom, I don't know if he grew up with this in, in, in his Israelite Hebrew culture, but we have, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's absolute nonsense. It's, it's not only nonsense in the sense that um, words can create genuine hurt emotionally, psychologically. It's also that as we speak and use words, they matter and we will be accountable for all of them. And so what David is doing here is he's coming before God knowing that the way that he speaks as a leader is really meaningful and he does not want to distract from or to diminish the glory of God among the people of God. And so he is asking God, give me a mouth that brings you praise. Don't let anything come out that would be harmful to others. I think one of the most harmful things in our generation is not found out in the world. It's found inside the church. And it's this doctrine that is deceptive, man-driven, and not found anywhere in Scripture. The most harmful thing that we can do to our neighbor. Friends, if we don't think theology matters, one, you haven't been here very long. Um, but if we don't think that theology genuinely matters, let's think back to the Garden of Eden and the reality that here comes Satan. And what is one of the first things that he does? He wants to distort in Eve's mind who the living God is. And one of the most dangerous things we can do for our neighbor is to say something that would misrepresent who God genuinely is. Now again, why do we struggle in prayer? Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And because we don't know His Word. So how do we positively impact people with our words? By speaking in accordance with God's words. His thoughts. His views. Sometimes, God does, in His kindness, answer this prayer by giving us the wisdom to just be silent. Is it Abraham Lincoln or Mark Twain? Those two really get mixed up in my mind sometimes. But one of them said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. There's another man who said, I've often repented of having spoken, but I have never repented of being silent. I don't know that that bears out completely. There are times that I wish I would have said something in a moment. Um, But it is generally wisdom that keeps us from speaking things that are not true. Secondly, he prays that, that, that God would guard his heart. Where is it that harmful words come from? They come from our hearts. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart... In Luke chapter 6, the mouth speaks. If our heart is corrupt, then our speech and our actions will also be corrupt. And and when we find something that is, it rubs against the grain of our light, tepid theology in our day, but Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us very clearly that our heart 
is deceitful above all things. And so we should pray, God, not only guard our mouths, but guard the heart where all of our words ultimately come from. And we can rest knowing that our God, as that is genuinely our desire, does that. Ezekiel chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and put, in, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How is it that we find anyone to be profitable in the speaking of words that is only of God sovereignly, kindly, miraculously takes away from them a heart of stone that speaks foolish truth, about God and neighbor and instead gives them a heart that beats for God and wants to speak accurately and clearly about the things of God. So we see when people are used of God to bring glory of God, we should not give glory to the individual instruments. We should turn back to God knowing that He has changed hearts and He has given words. And we should pray for the same thing in our own lives. Then David goes on to ask God to change his actions. If we look at verse 4, do not let my heart incline to evil. Then he goes on from there to say, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let not, uh, let me not eat of their delicacies. Isn't this what Jesus taught us to pray that in Matthew chapter 6, lead us not into temptation. Now, again, here we are, and David is not only saying, keep me from doing evil things, but keep me from the company of evil people. Now, our modernists love to drill on in on the fact that the Pharisees accused Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners and, and they were pietistic in their view and accusing Him. And so the, the modern um, liberal viewpoint on that is we should all immerse ourselves into a sinful culture and that glorifies God. That is not what the psalmist says. And he says it over and over. Don't let me keep company with sinful people. Here's the distinction, and I think I've shared it with you, but if you haven't been here, the distinction is that David doesn't have a heart that says, don't let me in the company of sinners because I'm better than they are. David has a sober heart that says, keep me from the company of sinners because I have an evil heart. Because I know that I will be, and it's interesting in the New Testament economy, that when we are told to, to restore one spiritually, we are to also what? Consider ourselves lest we are also tempted. Because a sober self-assessment doesn't look at, at, at a, uh, we don't look in the mirror and say, well, I'm a Christian. I can withstand all of the temptation that Satan throws at me. That's a stupid worldview. It's It's naive. Uh, what we do is we come before the living God and we say, God, I, I want to honor you with my words. I, I want a heart that honors you in the way that I think, in the way that I, I feel and relate towards others. I also want my actions to honor you and I know that I am weak, so give me wisdom in keeping me from people that will lead me down a path of destruction uh, in, in, in my sin life. David ultimately knows who he is. And so he wants to be around people who will help him along the path to glorifying God. Now we have to ask a question at this point. If we're not going to be around people 
who drag us into temptation, which is ultimately, I think, David's concern here in verse 4, then what kind of people should we spend our time with? If we are going to pray in our heart of hearts, lead me not into temptation, what do we pray in the positive sense? I think that answer to that question can come in light of a, a quote from Derek Kinder that really points us back to that great work of Bunyan. Pilgrim's Progress, as he says, there is a Puritan vigor and a single-mindedness about this psalm to put one in mind of Christian and faithful at Vanity Fair whose prayer was, turn away my eyes from beholding vanity, and whose reply to the challenge, what will you buy, was simply this, we buy the truth. If we are going to pray God, deliver me from evil. Keep me from temptation. We are also going to pray, God, saturate my life with people who will speak the truth to me. Who will honestly and kindly love me, not according to their feelings, but according to the Word that You have given us in the body. Now, as we move on into verses 5-7, through they can seem somewhat unrelated. Um, Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let, Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. But what we find is really what I've just spoken of, a a, a heart that, that beats out. We want friends who will wound us if necessary to speak truth into our lives. Now these next verses 6 and 7 are kind of interesting. There's a lot of different takes and I'm not going to go through all of the different um, potential interpretations because well, it's... I just get to share my opinion. Um, Enjoy of that. Let's read these together to just kind of get them in our mind. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, they shall hear my words, for they shall be pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Look at verse 7 there and the word, so shall our bones be. Now there is a disagreement as to how that should be translated. I believe the ESV is correct. And I believe if I remember correctly, the NIV is incorrect. Um, because they would translate this to be their bones to be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But I actually believe this is picturing juxtaposed realities for what will happen as people are divided in the final judgment. I, I, I would contend with you that what the psalmist is, is leveling before uh, the people here before us tonight is that in verse 6, he is pointing to those who will suffer the judgment of God. When their judges are thrown off the cliff, there is a, a, an implication there that the justice of this world is not perfect. 
and those justices, those judges, will be, will be dealt with, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. But then in verse 7, if we would continue to think that this is just speaking of those who will be judged on judgment day, I think we come away with a wrong interpretation of verse 7. Verse 7, as when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. I think part of what is being explained to us here is the juxtaposed glorious reality about the Dies Irae, that the day of wrath when Christ returns and the living and the dead are judged before His throne. Because there is a picture here given of, so what happens if our bones are scattered even at the gates, and the gates of Sheol is a bad place in the Hebrew economy? What if that happens? What if we are destined to be slaughtered in this life? And friends, we know that reality throughout church history is that many saints of God have been brought to destruction. They have been laid low. Their bones have been left in the dust. But they haven't been left there to stay. Here one commentator writes, assuming the very, the very extreme, it is, looking, it is a look of hope into the future. Should his bones and the bones of his follower lie even scattered at the mouth of Sheol, it would nevertheless be only as when one is plowing cleaves the earth. They do not lie there in order that they may continue lying, but that they may rise anew. As the seed is sown, sprouts up from the unplanted earth, we discern here the hope of the resurrection. What the psalmist is saying is one day the world will be judged. Those who would tempt others to evil will be put to shame. And the right judgments that we speak will be honored because they come from the Word of God. And if that leads us to a life where our bones are scattered around the earth, so be it. Because that just means that the globe has been planted with the, with the bodies of the saints and one day they will rise. Isn't that a joy to know? That no matter what comes, our heart's desire doesn't have to be, God, give us long years. God, give us health. Give us wealth. David doesn't pray for those things. David comes and he prays, even if it costs me my life, set a guard over my mouth and my heart and the actions of my life that I may speak truth boldly and that, God, You might be glorified. The fact is, we should also, as we read through this, be humbled and recognize that David wants to be properly rebuked by his friends. So here's a question tonight. As we go home in a moment, are we the kind of people that pray for our friends, not only for ourselves, but God, for my brothers and sisters at LifePoint, set a guard over their mouth and over their heart, and over the actions of their lives, so that they can speak truth to me, so that I can have a heart where I am rebuked. One of the saddest realities, I think, in the Christian church today is that we are no longer willing to be rebuked. 
Because although if someone were to come to us and say, do you believe in, in, in uh, moral relativity? That you can believe what you believe, I can believe what I believe, and we can all just sing kumbaya and we're going to be fine. He would say no. But the question is functionally, how does that work out when a brother or sister in Christ comes up and toe-to-toe in a loving way confronts you with your sin? You will find out in that moment whether you are a moral relativist or not. You don't find it by the textbook question. You find it by the real grittiness of being part of the body of Christ. Will you humble yourself and seek to understand and to seek to grow or will you just and walk away? Sadly, far too many times we walk away. You don't seek the guard over our mouth, over our heart, over our, our actions. So let's look at this last stanza, verses 8 through 10. The, the prayer has finished, and if we think about uh, Psalm 141 in the context of a worship service, the benediction ends, the service is over, and the question comes, what should happen as a result of what we have learned what should come because of the time that we have spent under the teaching of God's Word. And the answer to that is simply this. This is the pivotal point. But my eyes are toward You, O God. My Lord, in You I seek refuge. The answer to what should have happened as a result of the time that we have spent under this psalm is we should have a heart to pray also that, our, uh, that God would set a, a guard over our mouth, over our heart, and over the actions of our lives, but we don't keep our focus on ourselves. At this point, as we leave, we pivot and God keep our eyes focused on You. Help us to live our lives in light of who You are. And this again brings us back to another narrative in Pilgrim's Progress. You'll remember Pilgrim is making his way up a a steep hill towards a lodge and he comes to a place and there are two lions that are on either side of the path. Now, I don't know about you, but if I come to uh, two lions just kind of sitting there in my jog in the morning, that's going to... whoa. Like, I get that when I see two beady little eyes staring at me across the way. Like, what is that? And that's kind of what happens in the narrative with, with, with uh, Christian here. Um, he sees these lions, but he doesn't see that they're actually chained. And he's afraid that he would be torn to bits. And so he turns back, but the keeper of the lodge calls to him and says, Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for a trial of faith where it is and for the discovery of those who do not have faith. Keep in the midst of the path and no hurt shall come unto you. And so what does, he, what does Pilgrim do? He, he, he continues forward on the narrow path fixing his eyes on the one who has just spoken to him. And that is the wisdom of this psalm that David paints for us tonight. He is fixing his eyes on the author and the perfecter of his faith. He's not going to ask God to do these things. And then in a sense of, here's an old Puritan word for you, scrupulosity. 
And we would probably define that as legalism in our day, just constantly being so anxious about, oh, did I say the right thing and all of those things. No, you pray that God would mold you and then you move on the path. You keep your eyes fixed on Christ knowing that ultimately your growth in Christ is not because of what you do, but because of what He does in you. And so you can continue to have joy in Him. That's a good place for an amen, hallelujah. Because if it was left up to us, we would be devoured by our own devices. One day, Christ will destroy all of the dangers, won't He? Won't that be a great day? When we no longer have to think about life in terms of all of the the spiritual perils, the lions that just are set on either path. And, And friends, we are given to so many different forms of destruction. If it's not just open rebellion towards God, we, we, we tend to be prideful and humanity is just an absolute mess. We're, we're part of that. But we are told in Hebrews that one day, one day, Christ is going to put all of those things away. Uh, Hebrews really applies the words of this psalm You crowned Him with glory and honor, and you have put everything under His, that is Christ's feet. At the present time, we don't see everything subjected to Him. We do live in a world full of many dangers, toils, and snares. And I believe that that is why we find in Hebrews chapter 12 these words, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. What do we do? in a world where there are so many snares and traps set before us as the people of God. Uh, What do we do when we reckon with the fact that we all have to wrestle with our own sin? We don't despair. We keep our eyes set upon Christ. And we know that the prayer that, that, that David prays here in verse 10 will ultimately win out. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass safely by. That is the gift of knowing God's going to answer that for everyone that is in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you tonight humbled by the reality that we are people who don't pray as we should. Uh, We don't think thoughts that you think. Uh, We're not immersed in the Word the way we ought to be. Father, would you... Give us a a spirit that cries out to You continually to set a guard over our mouth, to continue to mold and change our hearts for Your glory, that our actions would be different in our lives and not that we might be praised, but that You would be praised eternally. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son to bear the penalty that we all deserve. We ask, Father, that You would be glorified and as we walk through a wicked world, Give us wisdom to lift our heads away from the difficulty that we face in this perverse generation and sing praises to You, worshiping You rightly for who You have revealed Yourself to be in the pages of Scripture. In Christ's name, Amen.